Last week, we looked at a very difficult passage of Hebrews 6, where it described what might appear to be someone losing their salvation, possibly. And we looked at uh, the, um, what the text is saying and, and, and how the, 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 the real message, when we understand it in context, both in the book and in the scriptures as a whole, is that it's not saying that Christians can lose their salvation. It's that Christians who are redeemed by Christ keep moving forward. We learn that Christians can't stop, right? But today, I want to, maybe you could say, push back on my own lesson a little bit and ask the question, but what keeps you going? Are we just robots? Are we just like, well, I'm a Christian, so I'm just going to keep on plodding ahead and nothing can stop me. No, what keeps you going? What, is there a motivation? Is there something in front of us? As a Christian, if I'm going to grow and I'm going to become more like Christ each and every day, what is it that keeps me going? There has to be a motivation there. There has to be a confidence there that gets me up in the morning. It allows me to push forward to know more about Jesus every single day. And today, we're going to be finishing off the book or the chapter, uh, uh, chapter 6 of Hebrews, and we're going to see a promise that you can count on. Before we jump into our passage for today, I want you to look back at the end of the passage we looked at last week, verses 11 and 12 of chapter 6, after he talked about those who have fallen away, and then he says, but in regard to you, I, we're convinced of better things, things of pertaining to salvation, that, that, that we, we're confident that you are truly saved. And then verse 11 says, and we desire that each one of you show the same earnestness, to have a full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. And that word promise launches him off into a discussion of the promises of God. We ended the, with the, the, those two verses last week, and we're called to this earnestness and this full assurance to push toward this promise. But now we have to ask the question, what is the promise? What are we as Christians promised? Well, it, it's the promise of everything that we have in the gospel. The promise of future rest, of eternal life, of resurrection. What an incredible promise that we have because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. But... The excitement about a promise is only as strong as your confidence in a promise. Right? You might lack confidence because of, well, let's see, someone makes you a promise, okay? What could be some reasons for you to lack confidence in that promise? They may be untrustworthy. Okay, so the person who gives the promise. Yeah, about. They're human. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, I, you know, I can only count on it so much. Um, what else? What might be some other reasons why you might be lack confidence in a promise, David? Their reputation in keeping promises. Okay, their track record. The promise seems ridiculous. The promise seems ridiculous. Yeah, okay. Maybe too good to be true. Or is that even possible for you to actually fulfill, Tony? Your experiences with other people's promises. Okay, yeah. Maybe you've just been burnt a lot of times and you're hesitant to count on anybody. So yeah, we, we often lack confidence in a promise. And if we as Christians have been given promises, how do we have confidence in those promises? How can we say for sure, yes, 
This promise is mine. I know it will be fulfilled. And it's producing in me this earnestness and this confidence and this hope. In other words, we could say that earnestness and assurance and a passion in your Christian life is fundamentally dependent on your level of confidence in what God has promised. Okay? Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. If you're a Christian today, God has promised you so many things, giving you hope in a future, eternal life, life with Christ forever, someday a deliverance from the very presence of sin, no more crying, no more tears, all of these things. And, and, and we can either doubt it because we're thinking, man, I'm not sure if God is trustworthy, or I don't feel like God has been trustworthy to me in the past. Or, this just seems too good to be true. It seems so radical, so incredible, so, so, so amazing that it just doesn't seem real to me. And we lack that confidence. Imagine you're promised a great sum of money. Okay, a huge inheritance. Millions and millions of dollars. So much so that you're like, okay, this is too good to be true. This is too much money for this to be real. You would need some serious assurance before you got really excited and went out and bought you know, your new Lamborghini or something. Right? You want to make sure, is this money re- reliable? Is this, is this promise trustworthy? And if you were told about this inheritance you know, from some sketchy-looking email you got, you know, some weird address, and it says, you have come into a large sum of money, right? Click this link to access it, right? You'd be like, ah, no, I don't trust that. I don't know where it's coming from. It's too good to be true. I don't trust that. All right, but what if that same promise was given by someone who has been proven trustworthy? And better yet, what if that money has already been set aside for you? That they showed you a bank account and they said, here is the money. It's been set aside in this account for you to access. All right, now you have a little bit more stable confidence to say, okay, this money is mine. I might not have it right now, but I know I will. And that's what this passage in Hebrews 6 does for us. When we've been given so many incredible promises that are easy to doubt, what we find in this promise is this assurance that we can count on the promises of God. God gives us great promises, and He backs up those promises. Okay? And why does He do that? Why does He point to, to, to these assurances that we're going to find in this passage. Well, the passage tells us, if you look in Hebrews 6, verse 18, so that too by unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. God includes the verses we're looking at today in the Bible so that you can have strong encouragement to hold fast to the gospel, to hold fast to his promises and the hope that he has set before you. God wants you to give you a reason to be able to say, I know that I'll spend eternity in heaven. I know that one day he will make all things new. I know that he will never leave me nor forsake me. He wants to give you that strong encouragement, that confidence that you don't have to doubt about this. You don't have to wonder about this. This is as sure as anything. How is he going to do this? We're going to see, first of all, that that he does this. He assures us. He gives us that strong confidence because of who he is. 
And so we'll see in this passage that we should believe God's promises because of who He is. Let's read verses uh, 13 through 18, and we'll find in these verses that we're taken back to an Old Testament story when God makes a promise to Abraham. So verse 13, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So he points to Abraham way back in the book of Genesis when he calls him out and God gives Abraham these incredible promises. I will make of you a great nation. I will give you a land and every, all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. And, and Abraham hadn't known God for very long. He didn't have a track record with God. He didn't know if God was trustworthy or reliable. He just stepped out in faith. And God is promising some incredible things. And so what he wanted to do is to show, as it says, more convincingly to the heirs of promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose. He said, I want to convince you today that when I promise something, it will be kept, that it will be fulfilled. It's impossible for God's promises not to be fulfilled. How did he do this? Well, this passage says that he promised Abraham and then he sealed that promise with an oath. In verse uh, 17, it says that, by, or by verse 18, by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have the strong encouragement. And maybe you've read through that passage before and asked, what is that, what are those two things? I've wondered that, like, it doesn't specify what are the two things. Well, this passage points to two things. His promise and his oath. Verse 13, when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. So he sealed his promise with an oath. And he said, my promise is unchangeable and it's impossible for me to lie when I make a promise. But on top of that, just to convince you even more with more assurance, I sealed that promise that's impossible impossible for me to lie about with an oath by which it's impossible for me to lie. And that's unchangeable just as the promise is. It's almost like he overdoes it. He doesn't need, he doesn't, God doesn't even need to promise, does he? When he says something will happen, it will happen. He's so reliable. And yet he gives a promise, and that should be enough, but he doesn't stop there. He says, I'm going to seal that promise with an oath. He desired to show us more convincingly that we can count on his promises. Well, what specific story is, is he referencing here with Abraham? Let's flip back to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. And this is where we find the story that the author of Hebrews quotes in Hebrews 6. Genesis chapter 22 is a very famous story where God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son. 
And, and, and God never intended for Abraham to actually follow through with it, but he was seeing how much does, does Abraham believe me? And actually later in the book of Hebrews, and we'll just study this later in our series, Abraham was so sure in the promises of God that he was confident that even if he ended up killing his own son, God would raise him from the dead. Why? Because God had already promised that he would make of Isaac a great nation. And he was so confident of that, he's like, I, I mean, if, if, if God kills him, God will just bring him back to life because he's already promised that this is the, this is the son. What an incredible amount of faith. And, and this is how confident he was in God's promises. So chapter 22 is all about that story. Skip down to the end of the passage to verse 15. This is after, right before he's about to lower the knife, the angel of the Lord says, stop, and then offers a ram that's caught in the thicket. The Lord provides um, a sacrifice in place of Isaac. In verse 15, it says, The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So this is the promise that he swears by himself. And this is a promise that not only affects him, but ultimately points toward the Messiah. Because it says all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So I mentioned the two unchangeable things there are God's promise and God's oath, right? Those are the two things that he seals the promise with that are impossible for him to lie about. But this promise that he gives Abraham in Genesis chapter 22 is not just for Abraham, but for everyone who will believe in Christ. That when he talks about the offspring through whom all the nations of the world will be blessed, he's talking ultimately of the gospel being blessing the entire world. How do we know this? Galatians 3 verses 7 and 8 says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify or save the Gentiles, those are the non-Jews, by faith, the scripture preaches the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. Right? He's saying this is a, this is a foreshadowing, this is pointing to the gospel promise. So this promise that we, that we read to Abraham is not just to Abraham, it's to us. And how does he convince Abraham of his promise? He says he swore by himself. Now, why would he swear by himself? Well, our passage in Hebrews tells us why God swore by himself. Down in verse uh, 16 of Hebrews 6. For people swear by something greater than themselves in all their disputes. An oath is final for confirmation. So this is just a normal practice, right? You know, if you want to seal a promise, if you want to convince someone that you're telling the truth, you might swear by something greater than you. But what, what, what does God do in that instance? Who would he swear by? There's no one greater than God. There's no one above him. So what does God do? He swears by himself. Jesus alludes to this practice in Matthew 23 when it talks about people swearing by the temple or the gold in the temple. I remember growing up on our street, right, me and my buddies would uh, try to, you know, 
would try to prove to me that they were telling the truth. And oftentimes they would, they would say something like, I swear to God. Right? They say, I, I promise you, I swear to God. And that's something that often can be so overused and almost a way of taking God's name in vain because it's just a thing that we say. But what's being said there? Like, I'm, they're trying to add weight to their promise by swearing by something greater than them. But in God's case, if he's trying to convince Abraham, you can count on my promises, he just swears by himself. God swore to God. He couldn't point to anything higher. And this wouldn't work for any of us, right? Like if I promised you something, I couldn't say, I swear by me. Right? You'd be like, well, that doesn't add anything, right? Of course, you're, of course, you're the one making the promise. That doesn't make any difference when a human does it, but when God does it, that's the only thing he can do. If he swears by anything else, it actually lessens the promise because everything other than him is lower than him. So God here is really staking his entire character, his entire reputation, his entire existence as God on the fulfillment of the promises that he has given to us through Abraham. He says, if, I, if these promises are not fulfilled, I am not God. That's how sure these promises are. The promises that you've been given in the gospel are believable because of who God is. We actually see one other story in the life of Abraham where God does this. And this is an incredible picture of, of how God, how, how sure God's promises are. In Genesis 15, you don't have to turn there, but in Genesis chapter 15, God is making a promise, a covenant with Abraham. And there's this really weird story of how he tells Abraham to take some animals and, and cut them in half and then split the halves and make a little trail through the middle. And then, and then, and then he falls asleep, he puts Abraham asleep, and then this flaming pot, kind of signifying the, the, uh, the um, presence of God, passes through those pieces. And that's how he makes his covenant. And you read that and you're like, what is going on? What is happening here? Well, actually, this is a, this is a practice, a covenant practice that people would do in that day. And what would happen was, they would take those animals and they would cut them in half and they'd s- split the pieces and make this path. And then the two people involved in that covenant, this agreement, right? I'll do this if you do this, and you'll do this if I do this. Both of those people making the covenant would both pass through those pieces. And what are they saying there? They're saying, if I don't keep my part of this covenant, may I end up like these carcasses, okay? They're, they're staking their whole life on it. That's what's being signified here. And then notice in, in Genesis 15, what happens? Instead of both Abraham and God passing through the pieces, God puts Abraham to sleep. And then God passes through the pieces. He's saying, this promise does not count on you, Abraham. I'm not depending on you for the fulfillment of these promises. It is me and me alone. It's my character. It's my power. It's my authority. I'm staking my entire existence on the fulfillment of these promises. That is how reliable God is. When you look at the promises in the gospel, you can be completely confident that these promises are yours because of who God is. So what should we do in a response? We shouldn't be sluggish. 
We shouldn't be lazy, but we have, should have this earnestness and this full assurance of hope to the end. Through faith and patience, we can obtain the promise just like Abraham did. But if you look also in verse 18 of our passage, we see that we can have strong encouragement to hold fast to this hope. That we can give up this world's possessions, give up popularity, give up anything that, that, that can distract us in order to gain the promises and really, to, to pursue these promises of God is the safest choice you can possibly make in this life. Sometimes we think that the safest choice is to pursue the things of this world. Right? If I can just get enough money, if I can get enough popularity, if I can get enough friends, that's the safe choice. That's where I'm safest. But is security found in those things? No, not at all. I mean, those things are so unreliable. Those things come and go, whether it's friends or money or possessions or whatever. That's the most unsafe choice. But if you live your life and say, I'm going to pursue the promises of God. I'm going to pursue what he has for me. And I'm going to set my hope on those things. That is the absolute safest thing that you could ever do in your life. Why? Because there is nothing more sure, there is nothing more reliable than the promises of God. So we believe God's promises because of who God is, but he doesn't stop there. He also tells us in this passage that we can believe God's promises because of what Jesus did. And we see this in verses 18 or 19 through 20. Just like God's word would be enough, just as God's promise would be enough, just as God's oath sealing that promise would be enough, he doesn't stop there. He piles all those things on top of each other and then he keeps adding. Because our confidence in the promise of God is not just dependent on who God is, but because of what Jesus did. And we saw the who God is based off an Old Testament example, and then we see a New Testament example in Jesus Christ. So look in verses 19 through 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that, is, that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We see this hope that we have, the confidence that we have is placed on a person, Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He already completed the work of redemption. He already tore the veil separating us from God. He already entered the inner place behind the curtain as our high priest, accomplishing redemption. And so our hope is really on a promise that's already been fulfilled. I mean, it's really, I mean, it would be super easy to believe a promise that has already been kept in your past because it's already happened. In a sense, we can say the same thing for our promises, the promises of the gospel, that Christ has already sealed those when he died on the cross and rose again for us. Jesus is our sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And he's described this way because he's already accomplished salvation for us. If we need any additional proof, that God will do what he promised. What Jesus did on the cross should remove any doubt at all. And that's why he's called our sure and steadfast anchor. It's what, it's what, it's what solidifies and secures our restless soul. Right? Our soul is often like a boat on the waves, just uneasy, uncertain, unstable, And what is Christ? He is that anchor that keeps us grounded, that keeps us secure. And this passage also says that Jesus is our forerunner. 
He's, he, how do we know the promises of the gospel can be fulfilled, that we can count on them? Because Jesus already went ahead of us. Imagine hiking through a dense forest in search of lost treasure. Jesus is like the one who goes ahead of you with his machete, hacking down brush, clearing out a trail, leading straight to the treasure. And then he gets there first, stands by the treasure, and waits for you. That's what Jesus did as our forerunner. And so we have this gospel promises that we have eternity with him, that we have freedom from sin, that we have inheritance set aside for us. And Jesus went ahead of us as our forerunner. He accomplished the salvation. He sealed the promises for us. He goes into the right, into the presence of God, the father on his standing at his right hand. And he sits there waiting for us. And he's like, I cleared the way. I'm the forerunner. Just follow the trail. Hebrews 9, 24 says, for Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are the copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Why can we believe God's promises? Because Christ already made it to the end. And he stands there waiting for us. So what does this passage do for us? How does this passage help us? I think there's two main ways that this passage helps us. I think it heals, first of all, our discouragement, and secondly, it heals our doubt. You know what it's like to be discouraged. You know what it's like to, to, to be plagued with doubt in your life. How does this passage heal those two things? Well, let's look at discouragement, first of all. How does it heal our discouragement? Well, we already saw in verse 18... The reason why we have these verses is so that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. This this passage is meant to give us encouragement. And it says it's encouraging to those who have fled for refuge. Those who who have just done away with this world's way of living and thinking and said, I am fleeing for refuge to Christ. Christ is my security. Christ is my only hope. Christ is the only answer, the only, the only way to salvation. Those people who have fleed for refuge to Jesus, believing on Him for salvation and, and having their sins forgiven and, and secure in His family, those people look at the promises of God and have this strong encouragement. If I have a lack of confidence that all the struggling and the suffering in this life will be even worth it when I reach the end, then why keep going? What's keeping me going? You know, some of you might be going through some really difficult trials right now. In those dark moments, you ask yourself, why am I even, what am I even working toward? Why is this in my life? Why do I have to go through this? Is there a purpose for it? Hebrews 6.18 says, So that by two unchangeable things, in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. God has promised everything to you. And he promises that those who believe in Christ have an eternal future. And they will experience life in Jesus. And that even the trials of this world are meant to push you toward him, to remind you of who he is, to grow you closer to him. 
In fact, we read in Romans 8.18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. What's he doing here? He is looking to the promise. And he's saying, these promises are so sure, so glorious, so incredible, that these sufferings that I'm going through right now aren't even worthy to be compared. Romans 8.24 says, later on in the same passage, it says, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Later on, he'll say that we wait eagerly as we groan inwardly. As we go through the trials of life, we're groaning, we're struggling. But the promises of God that he's placed before us is what gives us hope, what gives us confidence, what gives us strong encouragement as we flee to refuge in Christ. These passages give us encouragement. And secondly, it heals our doubt. You know, sometimes I lack assurance that God is in control. Sometimes I doubt that God has a good plan for me. And you know, when I lack this assurance, when I have this doubt, I feel like, you know, a castaway sailor adrift on a stormy sea. No stability, no certainty, no confidence. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, my soul has no stability right now. I just feel like I'm in constant turmoil. Sometimes it's because of the instability of life. The instability of life causes your heart and soul to be unstable, feeling insecure. And then we look at this passage, and we see that Jesus Christ has already accomplished and sealed your salvation, and nothing can take it away from you. He is your forerunner, and he has purchased you, and he has bought you, and he has sealed you with his Blood And now, because of what Jesus has done, we have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. You know, what's your, what's your anchor in life? What gives you stability? What gives you confidence? It can't be anything around you. It can't even be anything in you. You can't find confidence and stability and you know, maybe a skill you have or a, a dream that you have. You can't find confidence or stability in, in a friendship or a, or a plan for your future. None of those things offer stability because nothing is stable in this world. First John says all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are passing away. What gives you stability? The only thing that you can confidently say when life is unstable, is this. I know that Jesus died for me, that he has saved me, he has made me new, and he loves me unconditionally. And even when your life and everything around you feels completely uncertain and unstable, you look at the work of Christ that he's already accomplished, and he's already bought you, and he's already rescued you, and he says, you are mine, and I'm with you till the end, and I'm going to be with you in trial, and I'm waiting for you at the Father's right hand, and someday I'm going to welcome you home, and I'm going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. All of these promises are yours, and they're sure, and they're certain, and you can count on them. And that's why Paul says in in Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39, who shall separate us 
from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can you sense the stability in, that, in those verses? Can you sense the stability in light of instability? In light of suffering, of persecution, of danger, of all of these things that shake our world? And he says, no, in all of these things that shake our world, I know that nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. We have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And he has entered the inner place behind the curtain and he has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. It heals our doubt. If you are discouraged or you're unstable today, Think carefully about these verses that we read this morning and ask yourself, am I, am I clinging to these promises? Is this, is this the direction of my life? Is this what gives me hope and a purpose? Or have I been clinging to something that's completely unstable? Have I been seeking encouragement in something that will not satisfy? God says, I, you can believe my promises because of who I am. And he, and he convinces us so much that he promises and then seals it with, a, with an oath, swearing by himself. And he, it's impossible for him to lie. Right? The confidence that we have in the promises is based on something that God cannot do. It's, he cannot lie. He would cease to be God if he failed in these promises that you have in Christ. And we can believe the promises of God because of what Christ already did. It's as sure and finished as the work of Christ. And this passage finishes by pointing once again to this guy named Melchizedek. We've heard that name just pop up, right? Time and time again. After the order of Melchizedek. After the order of Melchizedek. And we're like, okay, who is this Melchizedek guy? Why does he keep talking about this Melchizedek guy? Chapter 7, where, we, where, where he goes next, is what we'll look at next Sunday. And we're going to see why does he keep talking about this Melchizedek dude cliffhanger so come back next sunday and we'll see how cool this melchizedek guy is all right let's pray lord thank you for your promises thank you so much that you have saved unworthy sinners like us and you didn't only save us and rescue us but you just overwhelmed us with exceeding great and precious promises so that we can live a life of confidence of hope and security in who you are and what you have done Lord, give us encouragement. Give us confidence in this world full of discouragement and doubt that we would look to you and be sure that what you have for us in the future is ours. Give us the joy of that confidence. Your sons, let me pray. Amen.